Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Jeffrey Ryan, former Citadel quantitative analyst and now founder of Quant at Large. In our conversation, Jeff tells me about how solving his own investing problems using R led him to writing new packages for the coding language. These ended up being used extensively by the wider R community and landed him a job in his hometown of Chicago with the giant hedge fund, Citadel, where he spent seven years. Additionally, Please join us on Zoom every Wednesday at 10 a.m. EST as we have an interactive conversation with various members of the alternative data community. This week, Evan Schnidman is with us to lead conversation around investing in data companies. Join the LinkedIn group in the episode link section for more details. The period we're talking about now is kind of 2004, 2005, and you're saying, oh, it was just about kind of coming on the scene. I um, was uh, kind of learning this stuff in the, within the last two years. And it's very much the conversation seems to be very much a kind of well in, in machine learning, at least, and data science is, is kind of R versus versus Python. And dare I say it, and, and I don't know if I can say it, Jeff, but Python seems to be winning a bit. It's, is that possible? Yeah, yeah I, I won't go as far as say it has won. But yes, it is definitely winning, unfortunately. Um, and it's not I, and I use Python as well. I, I actually weirdly, I've used Python more for the data science component of uh, like wrangling data, just because it's that kind of language to me. Um, it was like a better pearl, if you will, but mm. it didn't have, it wasn't written by statisticians. It was not meant to be a statistical language. Um, so Wes McKinney, the creator of Pandas back in uh, 2010 or so, 2009, uh, had basically decided R was, he liked, I guess the R syntax and everyone liked R in the stats community, but he liked Python and thought Python should have the same functionality. So I I thought it was very bold of him to build everything himself. And he did, I mean, amazingly. Um, so yes, and then Python, because it's general purpose and some people like, you know, one language for everything, it kind of fits mm. that bill. R is a little weirder because it's not it really was never a programming language. It was a language to like describe your thinking around data first and foremost. And so Wes had to go and build all of those pieces to make data a first-class citizen. Whereas R is like, that is, that's exactly where it is at the very beginning. It's the, it, everything revolves around this data frame concept. So it's much better, and if only the world would 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 recognise that. Some let's explain why we're why we're talking so much about R. So so you were saying you were, you graduated, you came across R as being a, a useful um, a, as being a kind of very useful for your purposes. So how did your R journey go from there? Uh, so basically, I I worked on the exchange floor, the options floor, for about a year, and I left there to go start trading on my own. And with an actual uh, a person I had met on the floor as well. So in that process, though, I really wanted to get back into this, the uh, quantitative side, like the algorithmic side of trading, as opposed to this open outcry that I was exposed to. And in that context, obviously, everything needs to be in code. And R, like I said, I'd already been exposed to it. I like the idea from a statistical standpoint. There's most, most of the stats tools I wanted to leverage were already written, and they were written by statisticians in R already. So it, it seemed like mm. a natural fit. Um, but we didn't have really any good... The statisticians aren't traders or asset managers. So most of them were genuinely uh, researchers. So I, I had to build, it, it turned out I couldn't do what I wanted to do without building a bunch of infrastructure, like on a backtesting framework or even just managing time series data correctly. Uh, so I was sort of stuck with, uh-oh, I've, I've got to sit down and write some of this stuff myself now. Um, and I did, and I, I built it little, little by little, and then realized at the time open source software was kind of getting more traction and R was open source and it was kind of a community of a bunch of like-minded people and we had good mailing lists at the time and but there were only about 400 packages in the universe of r like so contributed things and most of them again were stats related uh and very little of the infra to get stuff done if you will so i i wrote some and then decided i would publish them because i benefited from all of the stuff i was using by the kindness of open source so i thought i should reciprocate and it wasn't exact it's not like it was the code I was writing, while very helpful to me, that's not where 
edge would be. It was basically like I, this seemed, I was getting so much out of this language uh, mm. that it was, it felt right to me to, to turn it around and like try and publish and move the ball a little further. And, and in my head, I really thought if I could build pieces and sort of help coordinate other people doing these pieces around these, we could, we'd end up with a, a whole much bigger than the sum of the parts. So broadly, broadly, you were coming, you were generating lots of use cases from your kind of attempts to use something like R in your trading. And so you saw that there was a gap in the, the R language packages at the time, which, and you were kind of filling it in with your own work. Um, and then you thought, why not, since I've created these things for my own use, why not, why not share them with others and kind of make the language more rich and, you know, um, give back what I've received type thing. Um, but so it was all, but it was all very tied to, this was stuff which was very tied to, to, to the trading work that you were doing. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, that was the only, I am very um, lazy, I guess, and uh, pragmatic. There was no, I didn't want to necessarily build a bunch of software. That was not the goal. It was more of, I would stumble across something that still wasn't there, or maybe didn't fit in the context of what I needed. So I would go and write it and then just publish it again. Not not necessarily expecting anyone to use it. Mm. I did. I did like to talk about things. So I think I picked up a lot of traction especially because of timing, just like early days. To give context, R had about 400 packages they had. Uh, by 2009, uh, we, so this is like 2004-ish. Actually, I published it, I guess, 2006. And uh, mm -hmm. 2009, it was on the front page of one of the sections of the New York Times, the R, the R language. Um, and as kind of like, this is the thing of the future, what people are using. Um, wow. So it blew up tremendously and by then there were maybe you know four thousand packages and i think now we're currently at 20 plus twenty five thousand packages on crayon which is different things you can do with r um which might pale in some comparison to like uh, some of the other programming languages but these are all very you know basically somebody who would research something or come up with a new algorithm would generally write it in r when they went to go publish their paper at the time um so that's and and the things you wrote uh, were fairly widely adopted in the end, would you say? Yeah, very much so, which, again, sort of surprises me. Um, I think part of it is that I don't, because I'm not a software, like I don't have a proper software background, what I ended up having was really just a requirement to be able to use software efficiently. Like I, I needed it to be the tool, not, I don't care about writing the software. I like to make sure everything I do is is well done. But it wasn't, that wasn't the goal. It wasn't, I'm going to produce software. It was going to be, I'm going to solve this problem for myself. And I believe other people probably have it too. But uh, yeah, over the years, downloads are weird in open source uh, because they're not, firstly, there's, I think R currently has something like 80 or 90 uh, mirrors around the world. So basically wherever you are closest to, you would try and download mm. software from that mirror. A lot of, for instance, EU rules clearly are very careful about privacy. Um, so all of those things are, very guarded you don't see even download numbers generally speaking but there's a couple of mirrors that are in the states or elsewhere that are a little bit more you can sort of proxy from them and guess you know total adoption or total downloads and downloads are a weird measure too because if you don't update something nobody needs to download it again um but in that context it's definitely in the well north of millions and millions of downloads it usually i think for i haven't looked recently because it's never really excited me but there were definitely years where i i did look because somebody had asked me a question and it was somewhere on the order of like two million downloads of one of these packages for the year it was, it was kind of amazing beautiful and it, but it's still the go-to you think in within ours is if you want to solve that those 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 kind of quantitative trading questions using r then then your your packages are still the ones that that will be will be used or they have have they been superseded now they they really haven't totally. There is kind of this competing sub ecosystem, if you will, of uh, that tries to make things a little bit easier to adopt. So back to like people do complain about R being, and maybe you had this experience um, that R is not the easiest thing. Um, right. So they tried to they tried to go around that, but they usually wrap all of the stuff, and not just myself, but others have written in this ecosystem because I ended up doing this conference in two thousand nine as well to do to further this idea of like how do you get more people to build out this ecosystem that has a finance community, we all need, and nobody wants to write again and again and again. Like, why don't we all mm. just kind of get together in a very ad hoc way and put together stuff that is going to solve all of our problems and, you know, not give away any secrets or not 
not do any harm to ourselves, but really the, the net effect is like participation in this bigger ecosystem gets us all further along. And, you know, then we can start to do really interesting stuff. What do you think? I mean, so I'm intrigued by that, that very kind of, again, democratic and kind of spreading the arms wide type type approach. And and I just, I, 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 it contrasts quite strongly to what Goldman Sachs does, which is that Goldman's have got their own coding language, um, which anyone who arrives at, at Goldman needs to learn and, and is completely useless the minute they leave. How do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I do. I've always, I've always been blown away kind of by that. Um, just because the technical cost to maintaining something privately is just dramatic. I, I, because I also have, you know, private code, anything that's like alpha related is generally that way. And if, if those things, even if they become sort of like an infra piece, I find myself, I go back to code. So I was, I, uh, kind of returned to private life, if you will, in the last few years. And I dug up code I had written back in 11 or 12. And it's remarkable, hard, remarkably hard to follow. I just like, I, I can kind of do it, but if you lose a lot of, you can't just go look on the internet for an answer to code you wrote and have never shared. Um, mm. So it's, you can only keep so much in your head. And I think that's the same thing for like an organization, right? There's, there is a, a knowledge. You can't, you can't go to Stack Overflow. Correct. If you've, if you've got, uh, if you're the only ones who use this code, then there's no one, else, no one else out there who can help you. Which, as anyone who's done any dabbling in programming knows, Stack Overflow is really who writes the code. <laughs> you know, yep. you, most that's, of the time, right. <laughs> it's, it's going to this, going to this kind of web-based help desk where, where people solve, help solve each other's problems, and finding a place where your query um, has already been asked and then copying and pasting the answer and putting it into your code and, and hoping it works type thing. Yep. Very much so. I actually had a, a question a few, uh, a couple months ago, maybe I was working on another project and, uh, I couldn't remember how this particular API existed or how you were supposed to do this call. And I thought to ask my, my co-author, I was going to text him and I was like, you know what? I, that, that seems lazy to me. I shouldn't waste his time. So I, just, and mind you, this is a piece of software I wrote, so I forgot how to use one particular feature. I was going to go ask my co-author because I was kind of lazy and then mm. thought, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to do this the right way. And I, the right way being Stack Overflow. So of course I Google and I, I find the answer to my weirdly question that I probably answered myself before, but it was answered by my co-author. So like <laughs> the entirety of it. Yeah, it just made me laugh. It's like, wow, there's it, the worst part of that, though. And this is, I think, what would happen if you build private tools like for everything is uh, occasionally you run into it's kind of like the end of the Internet. Like I've run into the last question I can find, like that touches upon my problem is my answer. It's like that's that's no good. It's like there's no one else on Earth who knows the answer to this problem. <laughs> it's like I've exhausted it all. This is going to be bad. So, yeah. Those kind of and those things were from the early days where I like, it really needed that community and the community is super helpful. I think that's where Python also has been so great is that there are so many people, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, helping each other. Yep. Um, okay, so let's let's advance in time. So um, we have last time I left you, we were uh, you were um, developing all this all these R libraries and R packages to help you in your in your finance and trading. Um, which have since gone on to be kind of foundational and seminal for uh, for anyone using R um, for finance. How does how does how how does your life progress um, from there? So uh, I was still doing well. That at somewhere in that vicinity of time, I started doing uh, consulting for hedge funds and prop firms and high net worth individuals who were stumbling across the stuff I had written and felt that. If, you know, sort of like me asking a question, they're like, well, why don't we just ask the person who created it? So mm. I sort of fell into doing a lot of work for some, you know, a lot of firms around the world and uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, but it was also, it never really was part of any firm, if that makes sense. I certainly had a lot of friends and I had built this conference in 09, which is still running today, um, that, you know, touches upon the same exact kind of stuff. But so, what's it called? Uh, it's called uh, 
are in finance, which it's mm. super unoriginal. I apologize for that, but uh, well, uh, you, you know right. what you're getting. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's actually very much a, it's just principally a practitioner conference. It's, and there are very few of those. If you ever go to finance conferences, they or academics type conferences, which were the only other thing that existed, they don't really touch upon like real problems, right? They're, they're mm. everyone discussing their own, or there's no implementation. So we, our intention was like to endeavor as myself and, and about seven other uh, co-founders of this, but um, the intention was to have real problems talked about, you know, carefully by real people and, and just have a very, the community that we had inter in the internet was, you know, in person. So we got to, got to meet people. Um, mm. But so I did that, but then somewhere in 2012 um, after pretty much the same kind of thing over and over, uh, I was contacted by a recruiter and I was not super interested in going anywhere. Frankly, I'd been talking to recruiters or recruiters have been talking to me for a long time. Um, mm. And none of it seemed super appealing. Uh, but this one in particular out of the UK uh, said, you know, I've got something interesting. I think you might, it might actually be of interest to you. And it's like, and it's also in Chicago. And I, I kind of got my ear because there are not a lot of firms in Chicago. Um, Sorry, I, I am in Chicago. I guess that wasn't clear, but um, and uh, there's only really one place I would I would want to work, and uh, and that was Citadel. So and it turned out to be Citadel. So and they were building a new a new quant desk um, from scratch, and so all of those things like I like to build new things. I like to be you know like people, um, and Chicago, and I really liked and respected Citadel and uh, and the founder. And so all of those things kind of aligned and it was like, you know what, this, this sounds like a really neat chance, probably not a chance I would get again. So, and do you think, do you think, do you think they wanted you for the same reason that you, you'd written all the, all the R libraries. So you knew that particularly well. I mean, is that, and yeah, the people, because I guess I had been known enough at the time in, especially in like the, you know, maybe not internet circles, but like in the circles of people who used statistics for trading um, it was, it, it, I guess my name came up somewhere and then was pretty easy to validate within, you know, whether inside the firm, people knew me from there and which I know they did because some of them have come to the conference over the years, um, many of them over time. But, uh, and then I think even outside, like hiring people I talked to had actually referenced, uh, good friends they had outside of Chicago and you know elsewhere in the industry who were like oh my gosh that's yeah we know who that is like okay so no, so that so that's got us into Citadel September 2013 as a as a quantitative analyst um let, separate separate kind of timeline um when do you become aware of of alternative data and 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 what that is and 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 you know that emerging space so even the software that i wrote this quant mod package um is really dealt with kind of handling the disaster of free data online. Um, nothing is consistent. Not, you know, it's basically just a mess of web scraping. So I built a lot of those things and I, you know, they're definitely not alternative data, but there was this kind of notion of, I've got all of these different data sources that I, they, they don't just come to me in a big CSV file. In fact, even if they did, they're probably all messed up. So like, Early on, I had started working with just a lot of different data and a lot of go scrape XYZ to figure out, you know, some regulatory filings or things like that, where just mm. like, I really want this bit of information. And it's kind of a, it's totally a mess. And there's no vendor, nor could I at the time really bother to buy from a vendor at that moment. Um, so I, you know, definitely was not called alternative data, but, and it wasn't even really maybe it was kind of just touching on big data or whenever that came about, but it was, um, so early on, I think that was a, one of the things I was pretty good at was this scraping idea. Um, even if not the technically scraping is more like the, what do you do with all the stuff you can get? So, so this was, isn't this, so this isn't buying scraped data sets from some provider. This is, this is scraping it yourself. Correct. Yes. Um, and much cheap, much cheaper. Much cheaper, yeah. Although much more of a pain. Um, yeah. So I think that kind of that alone was a big factor, and also going into this, you know, because in 2013 you kind of got this, you have this environment where people are now starting to look at, you know, what other things are moving the market or prices on individual names, 
So like, and there was, if you're, if you're a fundamental PM, you know, all of those pieces, but they don't, they're usually not shippable in any easy to consume fashion. And you think of like conference call data, right? It's, it's been around forever, obviously. Um, mm. But it's something that in that era was still not super easy to even get correctly. Like it was remarkable how bad vendor data seemed to be. Um, so it was a lot of those kind of things, just like a, a mess of ideas. Like you, you, you have some economic motivation for what you want to develop in terms of a strategy. And you know the data you want because, you know, maybe you are a fundamental PM or maybe, you know, you're certainly friends with them or you certainly understand the, the domain a little bit more. But the data is not, you know, it might be in PDF form and that's just not very useful to a machine. Um, yeah. So that, I think that was kind of a big, e even then, like that was not necessarily my, my mandate going in, but it was certainly part of it. It was kind of, this is, you know, I'm not a traditional quant researcher that was not my role it was more like you know how how do we make this quant business more robust how do we you know just how do we even build it from scratch essentially and i think my role was kind of the data guy um so data guy and turned out to be a bunch of other things but yeah this touches on a on a wider and i think very important question um and i know um that you have had a huge amount of insight into lots of different hedge funds through your consulting and through your various R conferences and things like that um and so you have seen inside a lot of hedge funds as to how they work so perhaps um, and thinking about this, the question I'm about to ask, then perhaps we can kind of talk more generically about the hedge fund space rather than necessarily from yep. within Cit Citadel. Yep. But um, it strikes me that there is a there's a major issue out there, or or a, or a problem that everyone is 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 struggling with, which is that it can be you've 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 often got the portfolio guys, and then you've got the data guys, um, and it's quite hard to find someone who is both. Um, as someone who's got the head for the finance and also has the head for the um, for the data and the data wrangling. Um, and so this is so this was it strikes me that was one of the one of the great advantages of, of you, um, someone who's who has traded and, and used the use the and, and obviously is, is, is on top of the data side as well. But do you see that as being a problem? Do you think hedge funds are um, you know, do you see a disconnect sometimes between data teams and, and investment teams? Or do you think um, that generally they, they have gone and found people like you who can do both and, and who can think of the question to ask and then go and uh, think of the right data to do and then and then manipulate the data in the right way? Or is there is there a communication problem? Sorry for the long question. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think it's exactly right. Um, I think it's, so the, my general experience is that of like a good quant, somebody who is, you know, again, not good necessarily at writing code, but, but can write code to solve the problem at hand. Like they may not be an expert C++ programmer or, you know, understand memory layouts or all the other stuff that might be useful and, and is very useful. But like if they can take an idea, turn it into a, an actual signal because they know the idea and you know, the data they want and how to put the data together to be able to generate this, those like any good quant. And again, I don't know how really many of those there are, but there are a lot of them can, they'll solve the problem. They just, they know how to solve the problem. They're good in general. They're very resourceful and they're super sharp usually. And they're, I'm always blown away by how quickly someone like that can solve a problem that seems really difficult and sometimes so difficult to describe that you can't really, like, I can't picture handing it off and getting back what you expect to get back. Um, it sounds like, it sounds like you've got an example in mind though, with the example in mind, are you thinking more that the problem is, is within the code or the problem is where to go to answer the question that you need to answer? I think it's partly the, uh, there's some of it, the code, like, I guess maybe I could step back and say, if, because there is, and you're right in this, in that like there is a separation of sort of removing this processing of data, and it's different, and I think it's different than like the inject the initial ingestion of data, right? There, there might be someone else in the firm because multiple groups share it, and you figure out the licensing and however that is. Mm. But like, and I don't, and I don't cleaning know, it. There might be a team cleaning it, perhaps. I, I think that's true, but even that is a funny one because I think what you end up with is if. If you're not 
on the desk using it, right? If you don't see the actual problems in using it, or maybe you've not at the problem, maybe just you don't even, like you might be looking at, nine, especially on a quant desk, right? You don't need everything to be perfect, right? There's a lot of noise in everything you're doing. That's kind of the, the whole, uh, almost the whole idea. That's the job, yeah. <laughs> yes, so it's, uh, you're never going to get the right answer, right? It's just, it's all inference in some capacity. And what I think happens though, when you take, that the the actual like profit center like motivation like what you're really trying to do with the data and then say i need here's a new data set make it so i can use it there it becomes very easy if you're not figuring out what you need to over engineer it like you can spend probably a lot of time a lot of money hitting metrics that as a like as somebody who's tasked with cleaning data might look really important to you, right? Like you have, I don't know, think about like coverage. I have, you know, uh, you go from like 90, you know, maybe you get the data set in and it's, you can figure out entity mapping for like half of the, half of the data. And then mm -hmm. you spend, you know, three months or two months or a week. And now you're up to like 90%. And 90% for a, a strategy is probably good enough. Um, sure, 99% will be better. But what happens, I think, is that the, 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 when it's handed off to like an IT group that's outside, that isn't even allowed to see what you're doing effectively, mm. um, they they will continue to work on it and get it that like last 10% or 5% or whatever they're pushing on because that's the measure they're trying to get, right? They, that's the thing that they can measure. They don't have anything else to measure. It's not like, did this turn into a good signal? Did this, you know, can we use this across multiple signals? Is the signal we're using, can we combine it with another one? Like all of those things, they don't even know and that becomes now all of a sudden instead of you know they they spend time doing things that I don't think are necessarily additive at the trading side, which is really the only reason you're in business. So I, I dislike that disconnect. I also find it to be it just doesn't feel right to me. Like I very much like the idea of a maybe not perfect in every dimension, but like a uh, you know jack of all trades, if you will, which I feel like most clubs are. Because then they can get they can get enough out of what they have to be able to turn it into something quickly. Because turnover of ideas is super important. So if you're waiting on a data set, like maybe this is the whole shadow IT kind of thing. Like people figure out how to solve their problems if they're resourceful. And all of a sudden it I've seen it over and over where it's like the IT side will not be able to keep up or whatever they're producing is just the wrong, you know, they've spent too long because they made it perfect when you know, half perfect might have been just good enough. Um, you keep um, you keep using the word resourceful. Do you think that's the Do you think that's the key attribute of a of a good quant? Is that the first thing, and then the rest you can teach? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny. I think the I guess in the like years ago when financial engineering and there's just and this is my my view is very different than probably you know eighty percent of the industry possibly um, because like in a on like an equity desk or some sort of, you know, high breath kind of, you know, low IC type signal uh, generation, you're, there's, you really can't have a lot of complex math, if you will. Um, a lot of it is just like, I have a whole bunch of ideas, a whole bunch of data, and I need to figure out how to get them, you know, to, because even if you think about like fundamental traders who are the principal kind of directors of the market, if you will, at least in my head, um, they, you're always looking to like, you know, the earning surprise kind of thing. It would be maybe a, the most simple of all of them, right? You're as a quant, you're probably just trying to one up the, the fundamental guys, right? They know where, when they hear the numbers, they know what they're going to do. And generally a quant doesn't really know, but maybe they roughly know and they want to be, you know, they, they know they can read the data faster or something else and they get ahead of you know, just slightly ahead so they get a better price on the trade and and like those things um you know matter differently to the different groups so you've seen a lot of data sets um and you've seen a lot of alternative data sets it sounds like you were doing a lot of a lot of scraping in the in the early days um i don't know if if this um developed as the as the alternative data provider world developed i don't know if if perhaps then you you it became you know, using the using the ecosystem available started becoming more and more attractive as a as a as an option. Um, 
are there types of what what do you like in a data set um what's the what and particularly perhaps when you're when you're looking for alpha what are you what are you um what are you attracted to when 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 going into data uh, def- I mean, novelty and sort of difficulty is uh, as much as that's painful um, makes a lot of difference. Like the, something that's hard to do and hard to do where it's like it might not be, you might have to put some resources behind it and not just like uh, clean this up for me kind of resources, more like really have to stitch together a lot of different ideas to be able to generate a, like a derivative version of the data that's actually going to be useful in an, in a signal. This is because you know. This is because you know you're in a you're in a in a top quality tank, and so um, not everyone else out there is in a, is in a top quality tank, and so you know you can go places that they can't. So you should go to those places because then yep. you're going to be alone, type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then so I think that's actually one of my I I have a sort of dual mind on this. I like raw data partly because of that. Um, is that you know usually it's harder to to deal with. And the ones that like vendors that will clean up this raw data, they have, anytime you do anything to something, you're going to apply some opinion you have to it, whether it's, you know, like back to my point of like, I want 99% coverage instead of 90% coverage and three weeks earlier. Um, Those, those kind of things, I, that's the stuff about vendor data, like processed vendor data that concerns me as like somebody who's trying to Mm. use it. Um, It's too easy. Yeah, too e- well, too easy, or it's just, or it's possibly wrong. I like, uh, I just don't know what they did. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it becomes like I know there there was underlying data here that they pulled from, and I will say sometimes that's a that's definitely valuable in terms of even knowing where it comes from, like that, and it's not proper data provenance, but like, or at least what eventually will be maybe proper data provenance, but like that idea of how do you, you know, what did you use. To, to generate this data, what did you do to generate this data? And like, why, you know, asking questions, t- timestamps are one that's always been a sticking point for me in that mm. vendor data. And I think they're all much, much better now. Um, but it wasn't <laughs> that long ago where timestamps were almost just discarded, like genuinely discarded by vendors where you'd look at it and be like, I can't, this is not even usable for a quant. Uh, maybe it's totally mm. usable for a, a fundamental person who doesn't have to go back in time and back test something but like those kind of even like very trivial things like when i see data i can't update it because it got better three hours later i i have to still have the data you had when it was crummy and otherwise everything i'm going to do is going to be upward biased in my tests and then i'm going to get slaughtered when i go trade it because i just won't have that the real data coming to me at the same speed so those things are always like that's just like a proxy to what a vendor or process data can kind of look like accidentally. And again, it's all trying, you know, it's, it's obviously meant to be helpful and you get up to speed faster. But if you're, if you're able to test a data set that has been sort of massaged too much, or maybe just missing something that really is where the edge should be inside of it, um, you're going to probably discard it, which I think I've talked to vendors about this too, where like, cause you don't, quants are weird in that you'll, sell them a data set or give them a trial of a data set and you know there's some time horizon to use it and and then there's you know just like an up or down vote from from the desk like nope we don't want it and there's no insight to why but yeah. it's it's usually those kind of things i think or maybe they just didn't have enough time I and mean, there's a bunch of other reasons but those- so, so timestamps is one thing what else can a data vendor do to make themselves and and not messing with the data or the, or messing with it the least yeah. possible. Um, what what else can a data vendor do to make the to make their data set as attractive as possible to someone like you? Yeah, I like. I mean, I do like. I like both raw data and like somewhat like if they have an opinion on how to process it, I think that's great, and it's definitely nice to have that as a a reference or a benchmark possibly. But I don't like sentiment stuff or any NLP stuff is all. Or there's so many ways to do it that it's hard to tell what somebody's done. And it's possible mm. that you have a better, right? It, maybe you have an NLP expert and you can hand it off to them and they can extract more information than the vendor would provide. So like, mm. I like, and, and it's not always possible clearly that they will provide, or you can even find the original sources. There might be so many pieces in the puzzle that get you there. Um, 
or your the attorney you talked to a few weeks back had uh had that like data provenance like that chain of custody like where things come from like there there are mm-hmm. a lot of steps that maybe the vendor can't provide the the raw underlying data um but it's one of those things that you're there are pieces that you lose in those translations and it's i like to see what they've done but i don't necessarily want to use what they've done if that makes sense or maybe you do maybe you're just like this is great I, we will use this we'd also like to like play around with the raw data because we're kind of good at that and you know or at least we'd like to try <laughs> there's also maybe a level of hubris in there so having the option of both is good and then you can either choose one or the other or take both and see what you can do with both type thing. Um, yep. They're both uh, the raw data and the stuff that they've massaged and not massaged, but um, extracted insights from themselves to, in order to try and help you along the way. Yep. Correct. I think there's also, and I don't, I don't have any like good measure of this, but there, there are definitely even the lag of producing that sort of data. Um, and I'm not speaking in like a high frequency uh, concepts, but it's more of just like, if it takes a vendor three hours to produce, I don't know. And again, just I would pick some super simple and been around forever is like, you know, like a transcript or something. And it takes them, maybe it takes them all night, right? I don't know. And I'm sure a long time ago it did, right? It was not automated process. Somebody is literally listening and typing it down and then correcting it and correcting it again and correcting it again. Like those are things where you really, you probably can't collect the data yourself. It'd be very, very hard. So you're reliant on some third party usually, but it's also possible that you just say, you know, I want to see the earliest version of, I, I don't know, a transcript from a TV show or anything like that. Just, I'm trying to think of like, you know, where news kind of makes its way into the market. Those, the more it's cleaned up, clearly it takes more time from someone and maybe the vendor is very good at it. And I think vendors are getting really, really good at it and probably going to surpass, you know, an in-house solution for most firms. But, and that's also where you, you probably don't want the, the desk to be doing that. So there is a value add in the IT like side where that you could hand it off to a data science team external to a desk or that is shared by a bunch of desks. Um, but I think, it gets, you know, that all of those steps are places where there's, I believe, edge lost or potentially edge lost. So it's this weird, you know, you can do a lot more work, probably be faster, which usually translates to um, increased alpha, or you can, you know, do more or just have fewer resources to be able to, to do them with. So I do think back to your, like, the better tank argument, I think there's, there are definitely firms that can do this and a whole bunch of firms just can't. Um, so like you're, you're either stuck buying signals or whatever else, but they're, you're, and I kind of, I like formula one and uh, it's the same. I was, I'm always amused by the, the, you know, second tier formula one teams that use the same engine, you know, the same Ferrari engine, except it's last year's engine. It's like, you know, you're going to lose that there's <laughs> you're actually like, that is the game you're playing. Um, so those kind of things, the closer, is and it's super ideal world. Like the odds of you being able to play in that ideal world are pretty slim. But like in the most ideal sense, in my head, like if I could have the raw data, if I had the skills to be able to to turn it into something myself, that's miles ahead of what I could get from relying upon someone else to do it. Hmm. Okay, so you um, you were at Citadel for seven years, three months, but a year and a half of that was non-compete, which is which is an incredibly long amount of time. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Eighteen months on the beach—that sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> is that normal? Eighteen months? I, I, I don't, know I don't think say. it wasn't. I don't think it was quite eighteen months. I think I was a little uh, lagged in either when I switched it back or it was. Okay. Yeah, it was a little over a year, but yes. Um, it was is a longer time. Uh, I think I think it is pretty normal, um, or at least I assume it depends on where you sit. Like the closer you are to, you know, seeing everything, the money uh, machine. Yeah, yeah, and it's also just like I mean, there's. It's clearly it makes all the sense in the world. Like from a from a fiduciary standpoint, I assume like you you are you know you're running money for a whole bunch of other people and that those ideas can't accidentally be, you know, screwed up. 
it's a very lucrative business and it's a business of literally those ideas and so the the only major risk they have is that those ideas walk out the door and go next door you know and yeah. that is and there's so much money involved and that is the money you know so yeah. um so yeah i can i can absolutely see the logic yeah um, so i think it's and it is kind of a funny I, there are people who i think play that game pretty well where they just go from one place to the next and take a year and a half off each time <laughs> Uh, so that was, that's not why I left though. It was, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so tell me, so, um, you're, so, um, or if you want to tell me why you left, but, or tell me about Quant at Large. Yeah. So I, um, I left to actually start a few software companies. That was my things that I had started prior again in the same exact vein, except in a commercial capacity, um, that I was doing before, but basically larger scale, no longer tied just to the R language as much as that pains me. Um, and uh, so, but I obviously couldn't do any of that while I was there. And so I needed to exit at some point, which I, I, you know, kind of carefully chose a time where I thought the business definitely, you know, I, you're never, you're never really needed, I guess, anywhere, but <laughs> um, I didn't want to leave them. I, I very much liked working there. It was one of mm. the best sets of people I've ever worked with. Um, mm. so it It was great. And I didn't, I didn't want to leave, but I felt like I kind of had to leave to go back to do what I really intended on doing. And uh, in that process, though, I this quantum large thing is similar in vain to what I had done prior to actually working at a hedge fund, um, was basically consulting with other firms and prop firms and uh, and like family office. And basically, this is shaping up to be a... Uh, sort of like an advisory, like a similar to the way startups have advisory boards um, for newer or growing firms in, in this space. So the, and from not a kind of from the all perspectives, but principally my, my angle at this moment in my kind of wheelhouse is this like research process. Like how, you know, how do you go from idea to actually production in a sane way and maybe, you know, starting small at scale, like what kind of people do you need? And I want to just be a sounding board for, and it's not just myself, it's actually a few people at this point, but uh, basically be a sounding board for new, new firms as they go from, you know, maybe just an uh, ex-trader who set up his own shop or her own shop and go from, you know, that one or two or three person operation. And if they're trying to expand it further, that's kind of what I'm offering here. Um, but again, not in, it's really because I, it's that sharing kind of thing. I, I mm. very much liked open source and I very much will always like open source and continue to make open source. But the, the thing that I really like is this like sharing of ideas, like this conference that we have. And there's no good place that I've found where if you are running a, a quant business or want to be more quant, it's very really hard to find information there are some books and such a lot of books this is what i'm this is what i'm thinking but i was about to say is that um as we've discussed earlier like the ideas are the money really um and that's the business in a in a very in a very um lucrative business and so as a result it has been very secretive um so are there do you um have to sign you know um books worth of non-disclosure agreements in order to get (laughs) to get because essentially you're poking your nose into every one of these small small firms and 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 seeing what their ideas are so and then i mean so i just i i'm i'm intrigued because it feels like it's kind of a difficult thing for them to square it it is difficult yes um it is also i think a it's a combination of like you it's very difficult to get access to the information and again it's not the secretive component is is sort of amusing to me um just because, I mean, it is, it obviously is ideas and, and ideas do decay, but you also don't need to know the ideas, in my opinion. Like, there mm. are so many pieces around the puzzle mm. that, like, the logistics of making something work, a great idea, you can have the best idea in the world and to execute on it is incredibly difficult. So it's um, the processes, the processes, and they can be similar across all the firms. Correct. And they kind of, and they really are. And there's a bunch of even, like, you could build everything with tools that already exist. You know, there's either vendor provided tools, there are uh, sort of like tons of open source tools, uh, but it's not the putting them together part. Maybe there's, I don't know, argue, I mean, there's definitely edge in that, but it's not some sort of novel edge. It's just like you, 
if you do it enough or you try it, you'll figure it out. It's just, are you going to figure it out in a year? And maybe by then you've burned through whatever capital you had, or you're going to be able to figure it out in three months. It's, you know, you similarly, you could do any sort of consulting hire, like whether hire an attorney or, or some advisor in some other capacity, like for the creation of the fund or things like that. This is just a, a niche that I like and mm. I have experience at, and also that sure. my, my group, my network basically is also on that same side, like have all sat on a desk somewhere for years and kind of understands like, don't, you know, well, don't do that. Or we should do this or, you know, yeah. and none of them, there are even things like if you just, if you go out into any set of conferences, you'll be able to pick up all of the stuff. None of it's secret. It's just more like nobody's there that I found to be able to guide you through all the pieces. Which mostly because people are either sitting out or then they go back to a new firm. There just is not a bunch of talent that sits outside of the industry. It strikes me that your um, knowledge and your understanding and, and your understanding of how these these companies work on the inside is very attractive to other companies on the, doing the same thing. But it's also very attractive to companies that are selling to hedge funds and to quantitative hedge funds, because actually understanding what goes on inside is very useful for creating your selling process. Are you, do you consult to them as well? Or are you particularly focused on, on, on the buy side itself? No, I, I do as well. Um, and that has either been, yeah, it's, it's mostly come at me as opposed to me seeking it out. Um, it is because you're right. It's one of those things that you don't know. I mean, maybe, I never tried to sell anything to uh, a firm, but or like that kind of like a data product. But I would suspect like the quant business is very different than saying selling to the fundamental business or to the 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 central data part of a firm. Like th those are probably all different um, conversations. Mm. And I definitely believe the quant side is just going to be probably well, certainly more secretive. I think they're probably all going to be somewhat secretive, but like Quantside is going to be more secretive because they live and die by the data. Um, mm. But also they're probably the least able to articulate what they're going to do with it. <laughs> so it may or may not be because they're intentionally being, you know, guarded. It's mostly because it's, it's a pretty generally complicated process of what's going to happen once they get a handle on the data. So you know, there's no, if you don't, if it doesn't work for you, my guess is you're not going to necessarily tell them why it doesn't work for you. It's just not, it's not to your advantage. There's no, no value add to you. Um, and because data vendors are generally kind of one off, you know, the one, the interesting ones have one product plus or minus. Um, so I think, you know, if, if it doesn't make sense to you, it just doesn't make sense. And then, you know, maybe you give them some information, but it's not, it's hard to go back and say, why why didn't this work you know you could probably knock on a lot of doors as a vendor and get rejected a lot because and have no insight as to why no one will tell you there's no whatever uh exit interview but so yeah in those capacities like just you, everything from very basic ideas of like you know how, how does your process work to to more you know strategic how do you how do you present to the product um mm. those things are definitely interesting to me just because i've been around the space for a long time and kind of in a bunch of weird weird roles yeah. um who do you want to hear from it sounds like um quant funds uh in terms of uh, quant at large you want to hear from or or so yeah have you got anyone particularly in mind that you'd like because obviously this is a platform for people listening to this podcast to say oh maybe i should reach out yeah i think um firms that are are generally getting you know so the one thing i've noticed is that the firms that are well established they already know all of this stuff so so larger firms probably not super interested um in both directions with the exception of it is kind of i always think it nice to be able to ask personally someone else for a second opinion on something so i like mm. to also do that um if that makes sense which you know just kind of a one day or whatever run through of like you know what where are you at where do you think you need to be you know what what time frames who do you have those kind mm -hmm. of things but i would say more often than not it's the the newer firms that are just getting going whether you know this, this sub 100 million us dollar kind of aum kind of shops that are have aspirational issues and they you know they know what they're doing but they don't really know 
the steps and you can't go out and it's really hard to find people period for all mm. of the different roles you need. So I like the idea of being able to, you know, if, if you have to take it one step at a time, we can kind of help guide you in that one step at a time thing. So mostly newer firms, be it you know, traditional asset managers or even just trading firms, prop firms, um, they have a sizable interest in the uh, high frequency space, which mm. is interesting to me. I've not been a high frequency person, um, but yeah, basically newer entrants. And now we've got all alternative uh, trading venues. So like uh, crypto has been a little weird these days, but um, that's clearly an asset class that's going to just continue to grow. And then as more data you get for other things, there are firms that pop up around those. So, and they all kind of have that same underlying process that they need, whether it's regulatory or whatever. Um, but, it, but even in like the research component, they might know their domain, but they don't really know the manage money domain. Fantastic. Fantastic, Jeff. I think we've covered, we've covered R, we've covered Citadel, we've covered uh, what you're doing now at Quant at Large. I think we've, we've covered alternative data. We've, we've, we've covered a lot of bases, I think. So it's been a very, uh, productive conversation thank you very much and likewise this was an absolute blast to to speak with you and uh enjoy your show 